Welcome back, everybody, to the second episode in our legal series and our 53rd overall. This is your host, Akash Bhatt, and we dissect the intricacies of the Indian startup and VC ecosystem here on this podcast. I'm particularly excited about this episode because I have with me Ankita Singh, the founder of Sarvank Associates. She was previously the head of legal at Indian Angel Network and brings over 12 years of experience working in startup law. I'm excited about this episode for a variety of reasons, but more so because we had initially planned for just a 45-minute session, which organically ran over, giving us a chance to uncover and dive deeper into the subject matters related to term sheets. Term sheets can be extremely tricky. They're important and can be complex, but they don't necessarily have to be. The key is knowing what to expect, knowing what you want to get out of the term sheet, knowing what you won't bend to, and of course, having good representation to review all of the fine prints. And that is precisely what we'll be digging deeper into in this episode. We'll be covering the term sheet basics and hopefully provide you all a chance to understand this documentation better. So without further ado, we're gonna jump straight into the episode and allow Ankita to dissect every little aspect of the term sheet on this show. Hi, Ankita. Welcome to the podcast. I've been really looking forward to sitting down with you and exploring the term sheet. So I'm really excited to talk to you over the next 45 minutes or 60 minutes or so. Thank you so much, Akash, for you know giving me an opportunity to talk to you on the term sheet and the related investment transaction related aspects. Um, and I'm really looking forward to actually, uh, you know, get into the in-depth analysis of the term sheet provisions, as well as to make our, uh, you know, listeners understand the aspects which are very crucial from the investment point of view, maybe the founders or the investors. Likewise, I'm really excited. But, you know, before we move ahead, I again want to take this opportunity to thank Prachi Shivatsava of Lawfinity Solutions for giving me the opportunity to actually spend a little bit more time in understanding this space slightly better myself, and more importantly, in helping facilitate some of these conversations, uh, including this one. So thanks again, Prachi, for doing so. Typically, what I do here, Ankita, is that I usually have VCs come and deconstruct some of their own mm-hmm. personal thesis, how have they been looking into this space, and more importantly, what is like the insights that they can share with us about their time in investing. Now, this is a unique series within the podcast where we've been spending time on some legal aspects and some of the things that are very top of mind for founders, especially, but they don't sometimes end up spending a lot of time here. And one of that also happens to be term sheets because a lot of times their first time founders are looking to the space. They're trying to understand term sheets. They're trying to understand what are the nuances associated with it. And more importantly, where can they or should be spending time and where they can be a little, you know, be a little comfortable in letting go of certain things. So that's what I'm really excited about this conversation today and trying to delve a little bit more deeper into it. But even before we do that, I think a good starting point would be for us to define what a term sheet is. For a lot of listeners um, of the podcast, there are founders who are thinking about, um, there are people who have just started their founder journey or there are people who have just started it and still trying to like understand what are various aspects that go into a fundraise eventually. 
So let's start there. How would you define a term sheet? Because in my head, a term sheet is as simple as it's a rules of engagement at best. And you know, the That's more right. details uh, that there are, the better it is. Uh, as it helps you kind of better define the SHA document. So that's my definition, my understanding, but I'd like to understand from your perspective as somebody who looks at this and, um, you know, spends a lot of their time uh, in this space, how would you define it? And what are some of the characteristics of a typical term sheet? Yes. So uh, Akash, actually the term sheet, like you said, it's the important document from any investment transaction or maybe for any business transaction. So as the name suggests, the term sheet is basically a sheet on which the basic terms of any proposed uh, transaction, an acquisition transaction, or it's an investment transaction is written. So basically it's a non-binding document and it sets out the basic terminology basis which the potential investment takes place. And, you know, it's, it's you know, a kind of uh, first a point of discussion between the investors and the founders or the promoters and basis that the terms and the document, the more definitive kind of an agreement or the discussion take place. So it is the first round of discussion uh, happens on the basis of the, of the term sheet. So um, I think uh, this is the potential, uh, uh, you know, the document basis with the potential uh, business transaction or any kind of a transaction is, uh, you know, taken care of. I think that's a great starting point, right? We've been able to like define what a term sheet is for um, from a different perspective as well. Now, what I'm really interested and curious about getting into is some of the terminologies and nomenclature that's associated within the term sheet. Now, typically when you take a look at a term sheet, it should be, anywhere between four to five pages long. It's fairly simple. It defines some key characteristics and it talks about, like I previously mm -hmm. mentioned, rules of engagement. How, mm -hmm. what, what, what is basically happening at, at, at any point during a fundraise? How much money is being exchanged between two parties? What valuation is it being um, issued at? What are different mm -hmm. instances in which, you know, the, the deal kind of falls through? And more importantly, mm -hmm. what kind of liquidation um, can investors be looking into? And lastly, termination. Like when does the whole contract or the understanding uh, terminate at some point? But that's my understanding of a very simplistic form of a term sheet. But sitting at your vantage point and where you've been able to like look at various term sheet across various stages, what are some key nomenclatures that kind of like stand out that founders need to keep in mind when they're looking into a term sheet for the very first time? So uh, Akash, for the very first time, I'll give you a kind, you know, the uh, various terminology which are mentioned in the term sheet. Um, then let's uh, walk in uh, these terminologies one by one. So uh, you know, a normal term sheet would also comprises of um, the, there are certain parties who will be signing the term sheet. The term sheet is generally issued by the investor who will be investing into the company. So right now, let's take a, a you know example of an investment transaction and not maybe an acquisition or any other transaction. So for a typical investment transaction, there are parties uh, like the company, the founders or the promoters of that particular company or a startup and the investors who are the three basic parties for that particular term sheet. The term sheet is to be issued by the investor to the company and the terms typically are the name of the company, the name of the founders, 
the stake which the investor will hold uh, you know post the investment into that company so there is a various uh, maths which is involved here which we will discuss later on there is a price per share which which is to be provided in that particular document there are uh, details of loans or debts if are or if they are already there into that company there is the uh, discussion about the instrument as well so the type of instrument which will be is issued against that particular investment is also provided there is the valuation discussion as well wherein the pre money and the post money valuation is to be provided then uh, we come to more specific and more you know particular uh, terminologies which is with respect to the condition precedents you know a kind of uh, the condition precedent as the name also suggested it is something which is to be completed before the investment happens into the company there is a board provisioning as well wherein the number of directors on the board is to be provided there is an esop pool discussion wherein uh, esop basically means employee employee stock option plan so if uh, uh, you know if a company uh, if it is a startup basically the investors would want the company to actually uh, demarcate certain uh, number of shares against the esop mechanism which is to be provided in the term sheet there is a exit clause in the term sheet there is a liquidation preference there is anti dilution preemptive right there is right of first refusal right of first offer so akash uh, you know these are uh, certain particular and very specific terminologies which is there in the term sheet what we should do is i think we we should discuss all of these one by one in depth so that we can uh, you know our audience also has has a particular uh, understanding on each of these aspects i love to do that let's get into that let's get into the specifics let's break down all of these okay. things into a more simplistic language where people are able to understand and better be positioned to make decisions especially when they're handed a term sheet on work when they're looking into one so having said that let's get down from valuation uh, i think that's a great way to start because a lot of people first things when they talk about is what do i typically do do i set a valuation myself do i let the uh, vc set the valuation for the term sheet do i go on a safe note do i um, you know wait until the next round for future investors to really uh set the valuation what's the best strategy here and how do people how should people approach valuation from a term sheet perspective see akash uh, determining the valuation of a startup basically is a very uh, you know subjective matter and the biggest determinant if we talk about the valuation of a startup is the market forces of the industry and also the sector in which the uh, startup uh, you know operates or plays and this actually is also the balance between the demand and supply of money you know the timeline the size um, of the recent exits maybe in that particular space and also uh, you know the how much requirement of the entrepreneur is and how desperate desperate the entrepreneur is to raise money at that point of time so uh, generally the uh, uh, valuation setting of a valuation of a startup is basically a negotiation between the uh, founders as well as the investor investor i will tell you the perspective of the investor wherein the investor look at generally the profile of the entrepreneurs to determine the valuation besides the business idea besides the sector besides the competitor uh, competitive analysis and also the growth trajectory so these are the important factors but first of all the profile of the entrepreneurs is a very basic determinant of uh, the valuation of the company 
the competitive uh, analysis is also a very crucial determinant because uh, it sets out how um, innovative the product is, what is the growth or the market size of the product is, um, what the entrepreneur's uh, business plan is for the next five years, basically. So uh, it's a very subjective and it definitely depends upon the kind of investors we are negotiating with and also the innovation or the product uh, or the area in which we are operating. These are very interesting points that you bring up. And um, one of the other things that I wanted to spend some time on, on the valuation mm -hmm. aspect is understanding the specific language that comes down to this. Now, so the key terms that relate to valuation, in my opinion, are pre-money valuation, post-money valuation, price right. per share. So we can get into a little bit more on this because typically what ends up happening is people don't really understand when to have a post-money, when to have a pre-money, when do you, because it's, it's not straightforward to a lot of founders. Like when should you really be talking and using these terminologies? Mm -hmm. So again, if you were to take a step back and understand it from a valuation perspective, Let's define a pre-money valuation and let's define post-money valuation and price per share. Okay. Uh, so as far as usage of these terminologies is concerned, Akash, there is not much change in using these terminologies, uh, you know, with respect to the stages of the investment. So if the pre-money mm -hmm. and the post-money is used in the seed series stage or a pre-series A stage, it will be used in the, uh, you know, stages later on, maybe the series A or series B. So uh, if I tell you in simple terms, the pre-money valuation is something uh, which is the valuation before the investment by any investor. So if say, if the investor is investing one crore uh, and the valuation which the uh, company and the or the founders and the investors have agreed upon is say 10 crores. So the pre-money uh, and the stake which they have agreed upon is say 10%. So the pre-money for this will be uh, 10 crores and 11 crores, which is 10 plus one is the mm -hmm. post money valuation. Right. So, so the post money valuation is the investment amount plus the pre money valuation, which determines the post money valuation of the company. Now, how do we take out the stake of that particular investor in that particular scenario? So the stake, the match of the stake is the pre money valuation divided by the post, uh, the investment amount divided by the post money valuation, which means in this case, it is one CR divided by 11 CR. 11 CR, right. So that is the stake, which the investor would be holding into the company. Now, if we talk about price per share, the price per share would be determined versus the pre-money valuation of the company, which is the uh, pre-money valuation divided by the number of outstanding share at that point of time in the cap table before the investor invests into the company. Right. So that is how it works. However, the usage of the terminology is concerned. The usage is definitely all across any round of investments. And uh, we, I think we have seen in Series B also, Series C and Series D also, the usage is the pre-money and post-money price per share and the dilution or the person stake into the company. Um, with respect to the uh, time at which the founder should be aware of it, it is 
uh, at a point when they are looking for you know maybe the friends and family round as well mm-hmm. so the very initial round of investment for any founder is to get some investment from the funds uh, you know friends and family at a beta stage or an idea stage because at that point of time they do not have not, you know much to actually showcase to the investor right so the people who will be backing the founders at that point of time will most probably be the family members who are okay to take the risk and who are okay to trust on the you know on the idea of the founder so mm-hmm. basically at that point of time it's friends and family who will be investing into the company which is pre seed series also and at that point of time it is uh, important for the founders to understand these terminologies when whenever they are raising first round of investment because the mistake at that point of time happens is there is a lot of dilution which the founder do not realize and they uh, it is you know comes to their they bear the brunt of this particular dilution at a later point of time mm-hmm. so it is very important for any founder who is looking into you know who is operating into such business which requires funds from the financial investors or third party investors to be aware of the uh, these uh, terminology at the very first round of investment from the friends and family itself So when you're talking about some of these red flags with respect to having friends and family can we get into the specifics of it and understand some unique cases in which case um founders have not constructed their cap table very wisely at the outset because typically people want to bring on as many people as possible at the early stage you can help and propel the company get from a point a to point b now I have seen a lot of angels lately get into rounds especially those who are able to make a good case of helping from a biz dev perspective just helping the founders think through some of the product and just being good mentors in and around the founder to provide that really safe space for founders to come and think and get some solutions so they're happy to bring people on at that stage but again as you are rightly pointed out while you bring them on there are certain privileges that early investors end up getting which kind of help mm-hmm. help them uh, structure it initially but sometimes could end up being extremely annoying for later stage investors to get rid of them so what are some of these instances and what are the best practices uh, involved when you're bringing people on at the early stage especially that pre seed stage when you're bringing friends and family onto it and what should founders keep in mind in terms of some of the rights that they're offering in terms of some of the um you know discount is probably one of the first things that people kind of like definitely ask if especially if you're an angel or some of the early stage funds they want discounts because they're the ones who are taking a huge bet earlier on compared to anybody else so when a future round takes place they're hoping perhaps a 20% equity which is sorry a 20% discount which is typically the standard within the industry right now so what should founders keep in mind while building their cap table out especially at the pre seed stage so that as you mentioned they don't end up diluting their own personal equity beyond a point where it kind of becomes very difficult for them to like either crawl it back or the point or end up motivating themselves to actually have some more skin in the game to continue providing and building the company out as future years roll out that's right so akash i'll tell you with my own experience so we have seen a few deals you know where at the idea stage itself the promoters have diluted around 15 to 20% and you know which this makes the next rounds and enable going forward because ultimately founders 
should make sure that they have skin in the game right. because the investors and specifically the financial investors are investing at the back of the founders okay so i would not say that there is a ballpark figure for the founders to have you know certain stake into the company but generally if i tell you uh, and also the dilution is a very very subjective matter again because it again depends upon the kind of venture we are operate you know the founders are operating uh, you know and the space in which they are operating people do invest at the idea stage uh, where there is not much to showcase but you know it depends upon the founders it depends upon the investors and uh, you see i'll tell you what happened uh, in one of my deal is that there is there was a um, investment i think from the friends and family uh, which has diluted uh, the founders and when they came for pre series a round to the uh, to us you know when i was working at indian region network uh they were already diluted to around 40% so at that point of time and if uh, angel uh, investor is hold, will be holding or angel fund will be holding after investment around 20% they will be less than 50% so no investor would want to invest into a company wherein the founders are below 50% and they have in, since they will be below 50% they will have the decision making power and the voting power uh, again which will be lesser than 50% right so um no investor specifically would want a company to go uh, or the founders to go below 50% is what we have seen at least not uh, i think before series a round what generally nowadays people are doing or the investors are doing if there is a potential in the company and if there is not much to showcase to the investors at that point of time uh, you know at a very early stage uh people are investing into the convertible rounds now uh, i think in the us it is very much uh, uh, convertibles are being used in the form of safe note and all recently in india we have uh, rbi has come up with an option of uh, convertible note for the startups and convertible note is something which is similar to uh, what is the safe note in the us uh there are certain other mechanism in which the convertible happen used to happen before the convertible note was brought in so i'll discuss the convertible note in more detail uh you know shortly but before that i'll tell you what we were doing before the convertible note was brought in so convertible uh, there is an option called uh, convert uh, compulsorily convertible debentures and there is an option called compulsorily convertible preferences now both of these uh instruments were being issued without any priced mechanism or without any set valuation so how this used to happen was compulsory convertible debentures was the mechanism which was or the compulsory convertible preferences were the instrument which were used against the investment wherein the valuation was not predecided because there was no determining factor to determine the valuation at that particular point of time however there were certain conditions which were built in for you know the determining the valuation of those particular investors at a later point of time whenever the uh, founder in company is raising the next round of investment so say if it is a pre series or a seed uh, you know pre seed series round and the company and the founders are really fabulous 
and the investors are also keen to invest in however since they are not sure about where the company will go and what should be the company uh, and how should the company be valued at that point of time they can agree on certain mechanics like the next round of investment should be raised within say one year or six months and the discount at to which their uh, you know investment would be converted there can be certain milestones also attached to it that you know if the company achieves this much of revenue or if the company obtains these many customers there might be a certain valuation which might be attached to that particular investment and then a discount can be provided to this particular the, these investors and also that it can be associated with the next round of investment so say uh, we are agreeing to a particular so if say if an investor is uh, entering into a convertible uh, ccd uh, or so we call it compulsory convertible debentures as ccd and ccps to compulsory convertible preferences so if an investor is okay to invest in a convertible round in the form of ccd or ccps the condition might be like if there is a next round of investment of minimum rupees 10 crores happening in say 6 months mm-hmm. this particular investor will uh, the investment of this particular investor will be converted into equity at 10% discount to that particular round or maybe mm-hmm. a 20% discount so this is a pure negotiation depending upon the commercials whatever we are agreeing to however this particular option was available which was used uh, for a bridge round as well as for a pre seed series round but nowadays what we are seeing is because this was a ccd or a ccps this was also attached with a particular uh, you know uh, companies act metrics which were to be followed however right now since the rbi has come up with a Uh, convertible note option for the startups the convertible note mechanics are pretty simpler uh, when we actually compare it with ccd ccps because in convertible note there are certain criterias basic criterias which are to be fulfilled that per investor size should be minimum 25 lakh that is the per check size should, should be 25 lakh the startup should be a dpit recognized startup and the uh, and i think it is that it should be um if i am not wrong um i think these are the two criterias which are to be fulfilled uh, basically and uh, there is no uh, return which is to be filed with the uh, roc or the rbi so okay. that is the flexibility which is there so which makes the investment happens very quickly and the very important factor in this is there is no valuation requirement so the three important factors is there is a 25 lakh check size there is a uh, there is no valuation requirement the startup should be dpit recognized and we don't have to follow any uh, companies act or any rbi related compliances mm-hmm. there is a board resolution through which the investment happens and there is a uh, convertible note uh, share, i think certificate which is to be issued to the investor mm-hmm. so this is pretty quick and very important aspect which has been used by the companies right now which we have seen so we have seen a lot of investments happening uh, i think in the last 6 months through convertible note options that's been interesting so i think what you're also trying to say is at the early stage it's kind of positioned in such a way that it enables founders and vc to get the deal done quickly because yes. at the outset it's it's really important that fundraising doesn't take the amount of time that it typically time takes at later matter. stages yes. exactly now one of the things that i want to bring up at this point is how you are structuring your early stage uh, cap table right we talked about the importance of 
bringing in the right people, but also at the same time, what kind of rights that they end up acquiring. So typically in some cases, what I've also seen is that when people are bringing or founders are bringing people onto the cap table, they often also bring, end up bringing a lot of family members and this could be immediate family. I've seen some spouses being on cap tables. I've seen parents being yes. on cap tables. What is the ideal sort of advice here when it comes to bringing very close members onto the cap table? How does that make other founder feel? And at the same time, how does it make investors feel? Is it like a best practice to do so? Because at the end of the day, you know, you're still diluting some part of your equity, but there are very immediate close members of your family who end up gaining that equity. So typically, when you take a look at a macro perspective, the equity still remains within the family. So what is the general sentiment of investors and, you know, other co-founders who kind of are sometimes put in an awkward position, but are not capable enough to um, fight for it either because they are not the CEO or they've been brought on at a later stage to be part of a round. So they don't really have negotiating or uh, to, to have a conversation of that kind. And even investors at some point are put off by structurings like this. So what are, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah. So in fact, I had been going through these uh, kind of deals, uh, you know, uh, at some point of time. So if I tell you about with an example of a startup, you know, in which we were uh, uh, advising. Mm -hmm. And at that point of time, I was representing the investors, not from the firm, but uh, when I was, uh, you know, uh, from the investors in house council. So uh, see, the point is that whenever this thing, this kind of a uh, cap table comes in front of the investor, investor is not very comfortable with this kind of a structure. So generally, if it is a very close knit kind of a cap table, wherein the spouse or the father or the mother, mm -hmm. uh, or maybe brother of the founder is on the cap table, uh, generally we, consolidate that particular investment into the investment of the founder and through the transfer of shares. So in fact, I'll give, uh, in fact, we have done it uh, in one company wherein the uh, father and the wife of the founder were the investors. Mm -hmm. So the equity which was held by father and wife was transferred to the founders, uh, you know, founder at that point of time before the investors came in on the cap table. This uh, at some point also increases the equity uh, of the founder. And also it, you know, it is a cause of concern from the investor from a different perspective as well. Because at a certain point of time, you don't know how the relationship between those family members would be. And that is a cause of dispute as well at, you know, in some deals at a later point of time, which was for which, you know, which were the point of concern for the investors because they had to ultimately be the brand. So uh, this is also something to avoid any potential dispute. Also, mm -hmm. we do not generally want the investors do not generally want the very close family members to be holding the equity. Rather, it should be consolidated in the investment of the or the equity of the founders. Yes, the friends or some, you know, people who are not very close to the founders are there on the cap table, which is to some extent okay for the promoters because obviously they had uh, supported the uh, company or the founders at that point of time. But if I talk about very close family members, this is something which is a red flag for the investors and generally they do not prefer 
the these you know different um, family members to be there on the captable separately got it this is some very interesting insights and i think very important for a lot of founders to understand who and, and how they bring them on they are not actually performing anything so there are certain startups where the husband and the wife are the founders yeah. so that's a different perspective but then there are startups where the founders are completely different and the spouses or the parents are there on the mm-hmm. captable holding equity that is the major red flag for the uh, you know the uh, investors also if i tell you there had been red flags with respect to husband and wife also Mm-hmm. so you know uh, considering there had been increase so this is something which is a very you know a very interesting insight which i will be giving it to you because the husband and wife are uh, uh, you know most in most of the companies or i think in lot of companies the spouses are the founders so in that case also nowadays investors are ready to invest without any specific uh, you know uh, agreement between those spouses say if there is something if the things goes out or if the, uh, the relationship between the husband and wife is not um, you know going through or is not fine and you know they are coming to a situation where is where in the divorce there is a situation of a divorce or anything like that so the investment is at stake right the investors investment is at stake at that point of time because both of them won't either they will be uh, you know they would want to go separate they would want the investment there there is a dispute they won't be able to work together and if two founders if there are only two founders and both of them are not able to work together it's a situation of uh, you know it, uh, the investors investment is at loggerheads so i think that to in order to actually protect those kind of situations there is a uh, various clauses which are to be built in uh, which have you know which are specifically built in into the uh, shareholders agreement and also um, also you know there is certain uh, representations and there is certain extra uh, protections which are obtained by the investors from these particular set of founders in order to protect their investments at a later point of time in case any such dispute arises between the spouses very interesting i think this is becoming more common right as we see more spouses yeah, get into business together i think it's very important to also understand how to protect themselves and more importantly protect the company and keeping the best yeah. interest of that in mind now one of the things that we actually did not get into and i was hoping that we could spend a little more time here is security types you know we kind of got into um you know how comprehensive the structuring at the initial stage should be but there are some of these terminologies that often end up confusing people like what is a common stock what is a preferred stock um and you know i think what is a restricted restricted stock so if we are able to like kind of get into this a little bit so that when we dive a little more deeper and understand uh, and get into topics that has to do with um, conversions like when does a preferred stock kind of convert what kind of rights are associated with it at what rate that does that end up happening is it optional or mandatory so on and so forth it will set us a good foundation for that conversation so can we kind of understand from the outset what is common what is preferred what is restricted and how should founders be thinking about it yeah so akash uh, the common stock and the preferred stock is basically the nomenclature which is used in the us and the western countries but in india 
uh, we uh, generally as per the companies act which is prevalent in india mm-hmm. and generally also the nomenclature which is used is compulsorily convertible preferences which is the uh, which is just like the preferred stock in the us and the common stock is the ordinary equity shares of the company so uh, if i talk about the equity shares or the ordinary equity shares of the company it is the it shows the ownership of the company and it is the ordinary shares which are issued generally to the promoters so whoever is coming on the cap table the uh, you know the individuals who are promoting the business get to uh, subscribe to the ordinary equity shares and one ordinary equity shares is equal to, will provide them one voting right so that is the nomenclature with respect to the common stock or the equity shares however the compulsorily convertible preference shares is the preferred stock which we say and mm-hmm. it means that something as a name suggests it is compulsorily convertible into ordinary equity shares at a certain point of time but not later than 20 years as per the companies act Uh, mm-hmm. 2013 um however before that it will depend upon generally the preferred stock or the uh, compulsory convertible preferences which is a ccps is subscribed by the investors most mm-hmm. particularly the financial in, uh, investors because they want certain preferential rights upon the other uh, class of share that is the equity shares so it, as a name suggests it is the preferential uh, provisions which are giving them the name as compulsory convertible preferences and also it comes with a certain dividend which should be tied up with it because mm-hmm. it it is a preferred stock it comes with a compulsorily con- uh, you know a certain set of dividend however generally for uh, you know financial investors in india they normally uh, subscribe to ccps with 0.1% coupon that is they are uh, they will get a 0.1% of minimum dividend at you know any point of time mm-hmm. so that's the minimum uh, dividend which normally the investors take in there is one more uh, instrument uh, so ordinary equity shares uh, as told earlier is issued to the promoters and the preferred share compulsory convertible preference shares is issued to the uh, investors because they want the preferential rights upon the equity shares the third uh, instrument is again the compulsory convertible debentures since it as the name suggests it is the it is in the form initially in the form of loan the investment by any investor who is subscribing to ccd is initially in the form of debt but depending upon certain conditions it should compulsorily be converted into either preference share or equity shares as per the uh, you know contractual uh, discussion which has happened between the parties then again the fourth instrument right now which is being issued is the convertible note which is to be converted into equity share mandatory there is no provision of converting it into preference shares it is to be converted into equity shares and once the convertible and it is to be converted within 5 years so i just missed mentioning this before while mm-hmm. we were discussing the double note the uh, like the ccp some term of conversion is 20 years for convertible note the maximum term of conversion is 5 years so it has to be converted within 5 years uh, you know mandatorily converted within 5 years into ordinary equity shares so these are the four very common instruments which are being issued to any particular investor or startup or promoters uh, you know by a startup to the promoters and the investors uh, in india 
very interesting again, and I wanted to go one step further. Now, when we talk about the divergence in interests or conflicts which appear between preferred and common stockholders, we kind of have to like also understand how this plays out during a liquidation preference, right? Because due to the liquidation preference of preferred stock, preferred stockholders or common stockholders can have diverging interests during exit scenarios. Now, because the preferred shareholders liquidation preference, they sometimes gain less from increase in the company's value than they lose from decrease in the firm's value. Now, this effect may end up either may end up usually um, causing a situation where the board is dominated by preferred uh, shareholders who choose lower risk, lower value investment, um, basically over high risk, high value investment over a long period of time. Now, this divergence becomes more acute, in my opinion, when the company is neither an out is neither an outstanding success. It's not a phenomenal breakaway success, or it's not even a colossal failure. Now, in these sideways investments, that the amount of outstanding liquidation preference of, say, a preferred stock may be equal to or even near the amount of sale consideration in an exit transaction, the result would perhaps be that a preferred stockholder, a stakeholder or stockholder receives substantially all the sale considering the common stockholders receive almost close to nothing. How do you kind of protect some of the, some of these kind of exit scenarios, especially from a investor perspective when this kind of plays out? So uh, Akash, generally in the early stage investment, um, the there is a certain waterfall which is being agreed uh, in the shareholders agreement. Right. So uh, with the waterfall, we would mean to say that there is a set uh, you know precedence of getting the liquidation uh, amount. Uh, the liquidation amount there is a max which is attached to it again. Mm-hmm. It again, and there is a liquidity event which is defined into the company. So as liquidity event, again, as the name suggests, it's either the winding up of the company or an acquisition or a merger or reorganization or something which actually, you know, converts the investment into a liquid asset. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, if there is any liquidity event, uh, there is a certain waterfall which is defined into the shareholders agreement, whereas and a a normal standard practice in India is that whoever is coming, uh, you know, the last would be given the first preference. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of LIFO. So last in first out is something which is being followed. However, it again, it specifically depends upon the negotiation between the investors. One thing which is very much clear before a certain uh, you know stage is reached by the founders or the startup the founders holding the ordinary equity share will always get the least uh, preference with respect to this however within the investors itself uh, there is a preference which is decided the investors who has just invested or somebody who has invested just before any liquidation event would mm-hmm. be given the first preference and it will be followed by uh, precedence. So whoever is invested uh, before that will be given the second preference and all. Now it will also depend upon the difference in the valuation at which each investor has invested. So if say, if there is a pre-series A investment which has happened at 10 crores uh, valuation, 
However, within a six months period, there is a valuation of fifteen crores, and there is a uh, price round or the series pre series B which is happening. Mm-hmm. So in that case, the investors generally negotiate for the same preference of uh, liquidation. So you know these particular uh, so say a series pre series A and pre series B investors. Pre-series A or Series A investors, uh, wherein the difference of is of only five crores, might get the same valuation, uh, you know, metrics. Mm-hmm. So this is something which is uh, completely depends upon the various investors' negotiation, and the least the somebody who has invested at a very early stage would be given the uh, preference over the equity shareholders. Mm-hmm. So generally, this is what is followed. also with respect to the quantum or the uh, calculation of the liquidation preference or the liquidation amount it is generally the participatory as well as a non participatory so uh, earlier i think uh, before uh, i would say 2 to 3 years before generally the investors were wanting to take uh, a non uh, a participatory liquidation preference the how the participatory liquidation preference is defined is the investors get the amount of their investment plus the unpaid dividends mm-hmm. plus the percentage equity from the remaining amount so say if there is a liquidation amount of 10 crores mm-hmm. the investor has invested 1 crore uh, during their initial investment and they were holding at that point of time 10% mm-hmm. of the company the participatory would mean that they will get their investment amount of rupees 1 crore out of the 10 crore mm-hmm. then out of the balance of rupees 9 crore they would also get the 10%, 10% amount of that okay which means that they are getting a bite or they are eating into the uh, uh, you know the amount of the other investors category as well okay got it and the non participatory liquidation preference means that whenever there is a liquidation event happening and there is a liquidation amount of 10 crores received so with the same example the investor would get a higher of the investment amount or mm-hmm. percentage equity whichever is you know higher of both of these things so with the example either they will get 1 crore or if the 10% of equity comes to around say 2 crores mm-hmm. they will get 2 crores which was which is higher than 1 crore rupees so in this way the am- amount they are also you know protecting their uh, liquidation event and they are protecting their downside and also Uh, the, you know all the other stakeholders which is the founders as well as any other set of investors who are there on the cap table they are also having the uh, decent share of uh, money which will be left for the distribution amongst them mm-hmm. so that is something which is being followed now because it is uh, it also sets a precedent for the next round of investment right so if somebody has agreed for a participatory side uh, liquidation preference at the very first investment so this is the precedence which uh, you know which will be followed by the next incoming investor also because they would want that this should be there with us because they will have the greater say because they will be coming at a because we are assuming that they will be coming at a higher valuation they will have a greater say at that point of time and they would want the participatory thing to be there mm-hmm. but then ultimately investors have started thinking that at, at some point of time not only for the founders it is also not good for the investors to agree to that particular thing because it is onerous on everyone mm-hmm. right right so it is better to protect uh, you know the uh, whenever the liquidation preference and here uh, is there and 
uh, get a reasonable protection at that point of time. So this is how right now the liquidation clause is being structured here. Uh, there are certain, uh, you know, uh, deals wherein we have also seen the specific return to be agreed by the investors and they make the promoters agree to that specifically at an early stage, which is something which the promoter should not agree to because obviously if the investor is in, investing into an early stage, they are they know that there is a risk, right? There's, it's a startup. So they have to share the risk with the founders. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is advisable for the uh, promoters and the company not to agree for any set or any pre-agreed uh, principle for the liquidation. It should be dependent upon a match which is open to, uh, uh, you know, to work at that point of time whenever liquidation event happens. Mm -hmm. But if we are agreeing, say, on 2% or 3% IRR or say 2x of the liquidation preference, which again is a kind of onerous practice, which is, which uh, you know, some investors follow, which is, um, which I think is, not right for the promoters to agree upon at a certain, at such an early stage when there is no uh, you know there is no set precedence or the the they also have to prove the startup and the founders uh, in the market. Very interesting. And the other thing that also guarantees a certain return is by asking for a dividend, right? I don't know how often you end up seeing this happen in the Indian scenario. And in case of the startups, this dividend is often not paid over a regular basis. Instead, the investors allow you to accumulate the dividends by growing the preferred in size over time. So at the end mm -hmm. of the investment, which is either an exit in, in the case of acquisition or IPO, the preferred would have grown and the investor will now benefit from the fixed return. So basically the recordation preference grows over time. How often do you end up seeing such kind of dividential contra contracts within the term sheet? So Akash, uh, you know, any specific uh, percentage of dividend uh, or something which is, uh, um, you know, deciding uh, a pre-decided dividend is not generally practiced in India. Mm -hmm. And more specifically in a company which is of an early stage, it is practiced in a kind of mature company when there are, uh, you know, the, the product and the market is already proved and the company is has reached at a certain stage. But generally, the investors and uh, you know the uh, promoters agree to an aspect that there is no set dividend which will be agreed or to be provided, and that's why I told you there is a minimum of 0.1% attached to the CCPS. So generally, the instrument which is issued um, in the early stage investment ecosystem in India is with 0.01 or maybe 0.001 percentage of coupon and not more than that. So uh, whatever rest is being made by the company at you know a later point of time can be decided by the company and the management because obviously the investors are there on the board of the company and they are aware of the books and everything. So it can be decided but nothing certain is agreed and generally not agreed with the decent set of investors uh, you know in India. Very interesting. So do you also feel this is sort of a best practice at the early stage or this is something that we're lately seeing change during the early stage no, this construction? Is something which is there. This is something which was the best practice which was followed, uh, you know, I think uh, since we have started seeing the startup investment shaping up. Okay, that was, that was that's interesting because you often end up seeing how the liquidation preference uh, or basically how preferential rights grow over time. And that's kind of like what investors often look for, right? Because you end up making more money as we kind of like previously talked about. 
Now, the other thing that is also very important to keep in mind is investor rights and protection. How do you, hmm. from a VC perspective, protect your own investment over the, over the over a long period of time? And especially when it comes to discussing the deal economics, uh, most of the investors also want to optimize their upside at any point, uh, right? Mm-hmm. So when we talk about anti-dilution rights, with an anti-dilution provision in place, the company is kind of prevented from diluting investors by selling stock to someone else at a lower price than the initially than initially what the investor had paid for. So there are mm-hmm. two varieties that kind of like kick in here. It's weighted average anti-dilution and um, you know ratchet-based anti-dilution. Now, mm-hmm. can we get into like some of this to understand how VCs also can protect themselves and more importantly, from a founder perspective, how should they actually be thinking about existing investors? Because these are people who came on early, supported you early. And sometimes there may be situations where you're growing at a very fast pace, where fortunately or unfortunately, in order for you to receive and grow at the same speed, you also need to uh, ensure that there are certain people, especially the ones who are coming on in future stages, provide them the right kind of equity so that they're also incentivized to bring the kind of money that they should be at a series B or C to actually propel your growth. So can we get into some of the anti-dilution situations where investors kind of end up protecting themselves? Sure. So, uh, you know, uh, raising investment at a lower valuation from the uh, valuation at which the startup has raised uh, uh, earlier is also one aspect which I would like to touch upon when we were talking about the investment at a very early stage, maybe Mm -hmm. the idea or the stage from the friends and family. So if, uh, say, if a startup or if the founders have ended up raising, diluting themselves a lot and then ended up raising at a higher valuation at that point of time without having knowledge about how much, uh, you know, value, their, uh, how much uh, they should be valued at that point of time. And if the next round of investment, obviously, whenever there is a seasoned investor coming in, they would like to actually value the idea and they would like to see if the, uh, you know, what the company is worth investment, uh, investing. And it might end up, uh, you know, they might end up valuing the company a much at a much lower valuation from which they have raised the investment from the friends and family. So mm-hmm. that is also something which is a problem or which happens and which is a cause of concern for the investors also, because obviously they, uh, it comes as a down round, right? right. So if, uh, and it is also a kind of uh, um, very psychological, there's a psychological effect also attached to it. So if you have raised an investment from the friends and family at a higher valuation and you are raising the investment from the seasoned investor at a lower valuation there is a certain psychological aspect as well attached to it and also at that point of time there might be certain disputes with your uh, friends and family uh, you know stakeholders also so that is something which also is a cause of concern with not having a much understanding at uh, by, by raising the investment at that point of time mm-hmm. Now, when we are talking about the anti-dilution mechanism, so the investors being the, uh, whenever we are negotiating any right from the investor's side, or even if so, at times it has happened that, uh, you know, our firm or we have advised the investors as well as the founders being the common counsels for them, Mm -hmm. or maybe the existing investors. So right now I'm working on a deal wherein I'm advising all the three parties, the companies, the incoming investor, as well as the existing investor. Mm -hmm. So in order 
two, uh, the aspect is that, you know, there's not much valuation difference. So probably the uh, idea would be to have the same set of rights for the existing investor as well as the new investor. Mm-hmm. However, new investors who are coming at a bit higher valuation, they do not try to actually uh, dilute their consent related rights so if there is an exit to be kicked in or mm-hmm. if there is an action which is very important for the uh, so say if there is any acquisition event or if there is any liquidation event to be decided the new investors who are coming at a later point of time would want, want to take a decision on those aspects however there is a participation right always available for the existing investors and likewise for the anti-dilution mechanism also. So if there is a new round, which is to be raised, okay, the company is in the need of money. Mm-hmm. The, uh, however, the market scenario is such that they are not able to raise a money at a valuation higher to the uh, valuation at which they had earlier raised around. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there is a mechanics which is already built in, which we normally try to build in into the company that they can do so. Uh, they can go ahead and raise the money from the market, uh, you know, at a valuation which is lower to the valuation of the company by the approval of maybe whoever is getting the approval, maybe from the approval of the existing and the new investors together or from the new investors only. But before that, uh, there is an option always available with the uh, investors which are there on the cap table. There is an option of preemptive right. So whenever there is a need of money, the promoters would come to the existing investors and ask them for money. Okay. So if there is a requirement of money, they need to support their uh, investing company at that point of time. If they are not ready to support their company, they, the mm-hmm. founders would have the right to go ahead and obtain certain investment from, uh, you know, the uh, people who are from the third party uh, investors. Right. Now, if the third party investor would be coming in, they would definitely see, uh, you know, that it, it's a red flag for them that the own set of investors have not invested into the company. Right. Mm-hmm. When so there is a kind of um, a psychological effect in the incoming invest, uh, you know, the uh, third party investor, and therefore at that point of time, and say it is most probably happening in these COVID scenarios, wherein there is a situation of a down round happening uh, at most of point of times because obviously the market scenario is not good, the mechanics are not good, so. If uh, and if the investors, the existing investors have not supported, they are okay. And if they are okay to uh, for the founders to go ahead and obtain investment, uh, and they have approved it, the founders are in their full capacity to go ahead and obtain the investment from the third party investor. Now here we try to build in. I'm coming to the founders side also because mm-hmm. the investor side is protected. The founders have come to the investors for supporting them. They have not. Uh, supported they have gone out and they have asked for the investment Mm -hmm. now if the founders are uh, you know asking if if i am the counsel from the founder side i would ask the founders to actually um, ask for the waiver of the anti-dilution right from the investors Investors. because they were the first one to be supporting into the company okay 
now if they haven't supported it was mandatory for the founders to go out and ask for the investment because they need the investment uh, for operations of the company otherwise the company would die in that scenario normally and generally the investors waive off their anti dilution right however if the investors do not waive off their anti dilution right and there are certain shares which are to be allotted to the so anti dilution right typically means that if whenever there is a down round the ex investor who is a right holder of that anti dilution will get uh, you know proportionate number of shares or the certain number of shares which will up their investment to the percentage at which they were invested earlier before mm-hmm. this down round happening so uh there are two ways in which the anti dilution take place or the mathematics of this anti dilution mechanism take place which is right, like you said the broad based anti dilution formula as well as the uh full ratchet anti dilution formula so it's it's a kind of calculation akash which is uh, uh you know the, there is a formula with which the anti dilution uh, shares or the shares which will be given free of cost to the existing investor or a right holder uh to be given to actually maintain their uh, percentage percentage stake into the company mm-hmm. so if i talk to you about the broad based weighted average formula it is the kind of protection which which adjusts the conversion ratio based on the dilution right uh you know of the uh, shares which is happening so uh, i don't know if because it is a kind of formula which is there it depends upon what whatever the conversion price was there before the down round which was happening and what the uh, conversion price was will be after the down round which will happen so it's a complete uh, mathematics which will be uh, you know plugged in if i talk to you about the full ratchet uh, full ratchet is a onerous kind of a uh, you know calculation mechanism and it is generally so again this is again the best practice method wherein full ratchet was used by the investors earlier i think 3 to 4 years back but now uh, the investors ask for the broad based weighted average formula because uh, again it is uh, linked to certain uh, situation which we already discussed about the liquidation preference as well so if say there is a full ratchet which is agreed by a incoming by a new investor and uh, you know so full ratchet would would also means that the anti dilution which will lower the conversion price of the protected stock to the price which will paid in the down round okay mm. so uh, if if i give you you know if i give you an example of a full ratchet kind of a situation so if the adjusted price so if the price per share of incoming investor uh, is 500 and the price per share of an existing investor is 1000 the price per share of uh, the existing sorry i'm i'm just confusing it if the price per share of the existing investor is was 1000 and if the price per share of the incoming investor is 500 the conversion ratio would change and the price per share of the existing investor would also be made to 1000 which means the there will be more shares just double the shares which will be allotted to the existing investor which will again dilute the promoters to and every other in, uh, you know stakeholder or the shareholder of the company to the uh, you know completely 100% so this is something which was onerous 
for any uh, investor also, which was there ex already existing on the cap table and also on the promoters because it was an unnecessary dilution. So that's why uh, there was a, a formula which was being used, uh, I think more recently as two to three years, which is broad-based weighted average anti-dilution formula, wherein a certain percentage, which will not give a complete 100% effect to the uh, valuation, but a lower value, uh, you know, uh, somewhat diluted effect to the valuation aspect. So this is, I think, is a more preferable mechanism which is being used right now in the investment ecosystem. I think if I could able to like also provide that formula as we talked about it, uh, which I'll also mention in my episode notes, so all the listeners who are listening can kind of get a better understanding of how the new conversion price kind of plays out. You're basically taking a look at the sum of the common shares outstanding immediately prior to the new issue mm -hmm. and common shares purchased of the round was not a down round and the difference and or divided by what's the common shares outstanding immediately prior to the new issue plus common shares actually purchased because of the down round and multiply that number with the old conversion price you'll basically end up having a new conversion price that's right. That's right. Right. And in a full ratchet formula, will the it will always result in a larger conversion rate adjustment than right. the weighted average provision. So even when it comes to weighted versus full ratchet, weighted is more founder friendly, right? And that's kind of like how um, more founder like, friendly, mm -hmm. but it is also more investor friendly as well because see mm -hmm. that uh, uh, investors who are already there on the cap table who do not have the full ratchet, maybe they are not able to trigger because it might be that the investment at which they have invested is not, and the investment which is coming in is not a down down for them, but a down down for any other investor who is holding the full ratchet anti dilution trigger. Mm -hmm. In that case, all the other investors who are there on the cap table will also be diluted to that extent, right? right. So it is detrimental not only for the founders, but also for the other uh, uh, stakeholders on the cap table who do not hold that uh, particular anti-dilution trigger. Interesting. Now, in order for you to actually get into some of these conversations, it's also important to understand whether the investor holds uh, preemptive or pro-rata rights, right? Now, it's not an obligation but to maintain some level of ownership throughout subsequent rounds of financing, typically investors will want that. And you can only get into any of these uh, liquidation conversations or anti-dilution conversations should you end up having some sort of pro rata rights. Now, by allowing this, the shareholder um, or the holder of the rights to participate proportionally in any future rounds is very important at the outset, especially when you're making an investment at the earlier stages. Mm -hmm. Now, there are also preemptive rights, subscription rights, and anti-dilution provisions that kind of get put into some of these term sheets as you progress, um, you know, with later rounds. Now, let's talk a little bit more about that. Why is it important for founders to keep in mind that they have to provide pro rata because it's not mandatory? Um, a lot of investors end up asking that, uh, especially when they're coming in early. But if the check sizes are super small, or if it's a very hot round, typically founders don't want to end up providing that. Now, when does a hot round happen? When, you know, either it's founders who are coming back for the second or third time, and it's a very interesting area and there's fascinating, there's this fast growth that ends up happening typically um, in, in those cases. And Prorata like really, really sought after in hot startups. This even le leads some of the investors to sell those rights as this might lead you to 
getting unwanted investors as shareholders it is not uncommon to include language that kind of prevents investors from doing so what has your experience been in how pro rata rights have been structured over the years and what are some unique cases where this is kind of been fought for between founders and investors yeah so uh, akash pro rata as preemptive rights is a very important aspect which normally the investors want and the founders also understand that the investors would want the preemptive right and they are more keen to give it to the investors because they would want if the investors are good and supportive for the company they would want them to increase their stake rather than bringing in a third party investor so um, you know prorata uh, right is the most initial uh, prorata calculation is the initial uh, negotiation point for the investors whenever they are negotiating the term sheet so generally how we structure prorata in order to protect the investors point of view is that uh, say if there is a two to three institutional investors or if there are several rounds or multiple rounds which have happened and generally if the financial investors maybe they might have come at any point of time but they are uh, as far as shareholder rights are concerned all of them have get the rights all together so all of them get to participate in a prorata uh, you know as per their prorata whenever the next round of investment happens and that is the pre what the preemptive rights is um, preemptive rights is also uh, provided in the companies act 2013 wherein it is known as right of first uh, i think it is uh, you know further round of uh, shares whenever they are raised it should be offered to the uh, existing investors but that is from the uh, legislation perspective but the preemptive rights is the nomenclature which is used whenever we are talking about the shareholders agreement or a investment agreement generally the founders would want the pro rata preemptive right to be made available to the investors but the investors uh, in order to protect themselves uh, they are given a certain timeline to uh, so if there is an offer of investment happening and there is a uh, offer of preemption which is made to the uh, investors they had say a minimum of 30 days or a maximum of 30 days to come and uh, give them and answer to the founders if they are accepting the right or if they are declining the right in case uh, say there are three investors financial investors on the cap table and if one investor has agreed to accept their prorata while the other two investors have agreed have not agreed or even not responded in that particular span of time the uh, other investors have the right to actually subscribe to that particular prorata as well you know that way they want if the company is doing well like if i give you an example of a very good company uh, wherein i had started them advising on the pre series uh, round when their valuation was 5 crores however right now the valuation say is around 150 crores and this at this point of time there are three institutional investors and who are sitting on the cap table along with uh, i think a set of 15 to 20 angel investors as well so all of them have the pro rata preemptive rights but at the same point of time they also have a clause or they also have a provision mentioning that if any of these investors decline or do not respond to that offer within a certain period of time all the other accepting investors would have a right to subscribe to that pro rata shares 
okay and so that is a mechanism through which they they can increase their stake and they can uh, also invest into the company if they want to invest more than their particular pro rata um the other aspect is of a super pro rata okay so a super pro rata is wherein the obviously investor is having a lot of confidence into the company and the founders and they want to buy a larger percentage uh, into the next round of investment so they want a kind of not pro rata but they agree for a percentage which is higher than their particular proportion so uh, this is a negotiation point uh, which normally is not agreeable to the early stage investors and therefore in order to avoid super pro rata what we uh, the early stage founders agree to is uh, to give the uh, rights of the declining founders or non accepting founders or non uh, responding founders to the uh, to the investors who have all you know accepted the pro rata right of investment so that is how it is structured akash very interesting i like how you've broken this down at a very granular level to un- to let our listeners understand how pro rata rights are structured and more importantly the importance of it and what i'm also curious to understand is super pro rata right because we don't often hear about it and people don't really know about it i was speaking to a founder the other day in order to prep for this episode and one of the questions i asked is have you been ever asked for super pro rata rights and they're like we didn't even know that such kind of thing exists so it's very important for us to like throw some light here to understand how common is it for investors to ask it and have we been seeing an increase in the number of cases where you know founders are coming to you and saying i've been asked for this how do i deal with it how do i say no to this sort of uh, an ask has that kind of happened in your case in any of the cases that you've seen uh so uh, generally akash super pro rata is not something which is very much prevalent in the indian ecosystem mm-hmm. but there are certain investors who agree or they want uh, their investments to happen with the super pro rata right okay so super pro rata right give a uh, you know kind of higher percentage to the investor who is the right holder into the company whenever there is a next round of investor happening so uh, but generally super pro rata is not very common and it it is generally not agreeable by the founders also so because it generally scares off the other investors and because it actually if uh, you know it acts into the pro rata rights and maybe the uh, you know subscribing rights of the other investors also so if there is uh, there are existing investors on the cap table it generally scares them off until unless all of them agree to uh, giving the super pro rata right to any investor it is uh, not a preferred mechanism for you know the founders to agree upon very very interesting this is again an insight that not a lot of founders end up have end up having uh, when they're addressing yeah, these kind of situations yeah because it actually makes it difficult for the founders to raise the next round of investment happen if there is a super pro rata right already up, uh, you know there with a, mm-hmm. a certain set of investors on the cap table so who can actually ask for a super pro rata like for instance say two vc firms are coming in with similar checks one is putting in 750k check one is putting a 500k check or a 650k check who is positioned better 
to have these discussions. Now, let's say the person who's putting in 750 or the VC fund that's putting in 750 is a new fund, an emerging fund. But the mm-hmm. sp- fund that's putting in 500K is, is, is a known fund, is a named fund that has a lot of credibility in the industry. Is it common for the fund that's putting in 500K to ask for super prorata versus the person or the investor who's putting in 750? Or does it does, does the financial investment does not take in, or, or does not really matter when we are having conversations around super prorata rights? So the conversation regarding the super prorata are more, you know, it more comes in from the investor who is deep pocketed. Okay, so if there is an investor who is who has a capability to invest into the company for next two to three rounds, okay, and so that particular kind of an investor is more likely to ask for the super prorata, and the other investor who is a co-investor along with that, if that investor sees that there is an or incoming investor in on the cap table who will be able to support the company for a certain number of years or for say multiple round of investment they are okay to give that particular kind of a right to that particular investor and not agree for that because obviously they will look for their certainty also so if there is a good investor who is coming on the cap table who is certain to be investing on the next round of investment and has, has that much of cash available with them that particular investor is more likely to ask for the super prorata right and the other mm-hmm. investors are more likely to agree to give that investor the super prorata rights and also the founders likewise interesting i i had not taken into account various scenarios where that could happen especially in a case where say for instance there's conflict and two investors end up asking for super prorata rights uh, am i now compelled to continue the tradition of exercising prorata at every fundraise like at a series a if i end up providing super prorata rights am i also compelled to do that at series b and c and beyond because from a founder perspective and i'm putting myself in their shoes i also want to make sure that i don't make this a tradition during every fundraise right? You don't want to end up doing that. Sometimes you want to, sometimes you don't want to. So how do you end up having those conversations with VCs? That is the most important bone bone of contention from the investor side. You know, whenever there's a discussion of any negotiation or, you know, any negotiation aspect coming in with respect to the rights, we uh, should be aware that we are setting a precedent for the next round of investments. Okay, so like we discussed about the liquidation preference, we discussed of the, about the full ratchet or we have discussed of any other rights. It is a precedence which we are setting in for the next round of investment. So the investors or the investor who are asking for the super prorata also be aware that there will be a next round of investment happening. And if they are not able to support the company in that particular situation, there will be third party investors might be coming in who will also ask for the super prorata, right? Which this round of investor would not want to agree, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the same kind of a situation which will happen with the uh, with this particular, uh, with the founders as well, because they are scared of not being able to raise the next round of investment if there is an existing investor who is holding the super prorata right. So we might also agree to a situation wherein we are saying that if you are not able to support the company in the next round of investment, or if you are not investing into the company or not, uh, you know, subscribing to your super prorata, your super prorata would go away. See, the point is that every round of investment 
is, uh, opens the shareholders agreement again and there is a fresh round of negotiation which takes place but there is an intent which is coming from the uh, earlier agreement also because there is a precedence which is already there into that document mm -hmm. however uh, we can in order to avoid any kind of a situation this kind of a dispute or a situation at a later point of time we can al also agree on an aspect wherein if they are not able to subscribe to the super prorata right their super prorata right in that particular investment might fall away Okay. okay, so this kind of scenario might uh, be built in in order to protect the founders and other investors also uh, going forward. And if the investor is investing into the company uh, basis, their super prorata right, then well and good, they can go ahead and do that. And there's no requirement of a third party investor in that case, right? Absolutely. You're exactly right in that, in that scenario. I've... I'm trying to like see if there are certain aspects that we've kind of like left out because this has been so interesting. And I think one thing kind of comes to mind is, you know, we touched upon this previously as well, right? A first refusal or co-sale rights. Now, preemptive rights or prorata rights protect the investors in case of new stock offering by offering the right to buy more stock directly into the company, right? Now, at the same time, a ROFR or co-sale rights uh, protect investors in the case of secondary offering. Now, this refers to stock offerings where existing shareholders or existing shares are sold from existing shareholders. In the mm -hmm. event that an existing shareholder tries to shell, sorry, sell his or her shares, the ROFO offers mm -hmm. the investor the right to buy the stock before it can be sold to a third party. Mm -hmm. Now, generally, a ROFO also end up, ends up stating that if the investor wants to sell the stock, the company has the right to buy the stock before that is offered to a third party again. So from both perspectives, from a founder perspective, they have a right to like buy it back. From an investor perspective, they have the first right to end up acquiring extra uh, in future fundraise as well. So in typical situations that you have seen play out, have there been conflicts that have been associated where, say, for instance, the investor has the right to buy the stock before it's offered to a third party, but the founders don't want to do it and vice versa. The investors don't want to end up providing a situation where founders are able to like earn something back. Has that happened or is that peculiar for that situation to play out? So uh, see, the point is that I'll tell you what is the right of first refusal and right of first offer, first of all. So there's a very specific difference between a ROFR and a ROFO. So uh, a ROFR typically is right of first refusal, wherein the right holder uh, is offered the shares. And normally the right holder is the investors in the investment ecosystem. And the, uh, you know, the obligation of giving an offer in a situation is on the founders. So say if the founders are uh, selling their certain of shares mm -hmm. and if the investors uh, hold the ROFR on their shares, on their sale shares, uh, they will have to actually get a binding offer from the third party mm -hmm. and they will have to come uh, with that binding offer and offer those shares to the investor or the right holder. And mm -hmm. then right holder will decide if they want to match that price. If they are able to match that price, then they will purchase those shares. If they are not able to match that price, then the founder is under uh, you know all the right to go ahead and sell the shares at that particular price or a price higher that by, at that particular offer 
offer and not lower than that so that is typically the right of first refusal the right of first offer is again with the same example whenever there is a founder who is uh, selling the shares they will have to come to the company initially the first you know first to the uh, first to the sorry first to the investor who is a right mm-hmm. holder and ask tell them that you know this is something which i'm trying to or uh, you know there is a need of selling 100 shares or 200 shares and if the right holder or the investor wants to purchase those shares they can give an offer and if the investor is keen to purchase those shares and at whatever price they can make an offer to the founder and if the founder is okay to sell the shares to the investor at that particular price they can go ahead and sell it if they are not okay and they decline that offer in that case they can go ahead and sell it to the third party but at a price which is higher that particular uh, price at which the investors have offered so the basic difference between the rofer and the rofo is that in rofer there has to be a third party offer and mm-hmm. with that third party offer the founder will go to the right holder in rofo there is no third party offer requirement and the founder goes to the right holder directly and gets an offer from the right holder so the rofer is generally uh, negotiated by the investors on the founder shares in order to actually make it difficult for the founders to go ahead and sell the shares because it is important for them to maintain their stake into the company right so rofer is something which makes it difficult because third party would generally not be interested in because this is a pride discovery mechanism okay mm. uh the investors do not want to end up actually discovering the price of the uh, shares and therefore uh the founders will bring the price and if investor found it good they can buy those shares so the third party uh, investor would not be uh, you know much interested in discovering the price if they know that there is a rofer already available with the existing investor because at, at some point the uh, founder can come and offer it to the existing investor and the existing investor might agree and the whole exercise of the third party investor uh, will go in vain so that is something which makes rofer mandatory for the investors to negotiate while the founders want a rofo to be there built in on their shares which is highly not possible for any early stage founder to uh, agree uh, you know make the investors agree for a rofo rather than the rofer so generally this is a standard practice uh, there is certain investors or existing investors might also be there on the cap table who might also uh, be un- brought under the radar of the rofer or rofo because uh, you know the incoming investor would want to increase their stake and they would want you know to purchase more shares if the company is going good of the other investors also apart from the founders but the f- investors since they will also be a financial investor the existing the existing investors would also most probably be the financial investor they would not want the rofer restriction to be there on the cap table it is easy for everyone to have a rofo and you know if the founders if the investors are not giving a very lucrative offer to the uh, existing investor they might go ahead and sell it to the third party investor so this is the kind of typical scenario which happens generally if it is there uh, you know already built in and that is the reason that we want to avoid any future dispute scenario we would uh, you know want to build all of these aspects into the shareholders agreement so that if there is a rofer everyone knows what the mechanics are and we are aware of the situation and the circumstances which 
gives rise to uh, you know these aspect and if it is a rofo the each stakeholder is aware that there is no requirement of a third party valuation and the the right holder will get the price discovery done and also offer it if it is not acceptable to the other party they can go and sell it at a price higher than that so generally uh, it is not a bone of contention the bone of contention is actually a situation which uh, gives rise to a founder selling the shares um you know in a in a kind of a disputed mechanism maybe right. the good lever or a bad lever situation is something which is a very specific kind of a scenario uh, which should be built in specifically and very clearly into the document so that the future disputes can be avoided when it comes to selling the stakes of the founder and also the events which will be considered as a good lever or a bad lever event so uh, um i think that is something which i would like to say on a rofor or a roforite now if i were to extend that to one other sort of clause that kind of gets often put into place that kind of helps prevent the company from asking investment proposals from other third parties we just talked about why rofor rofor is important and you know we also talked about uh, how investors can buy back shares one other thing mm-hmm. that we typically end up seeing usually um in some term sheets is a no shop clause right this kind of mm-hmm. gives the investor leverage as it prevents the founders from shopping around for better terms mm-hmm. now this is a pretty standard sort of unsaid or you don't have to call this out most times but it's also important to look out with the timing it's so important because you don't have to look you don't have to have a too long no shop clause as it could allow the investor to take a long time for their due diligence and potentially drop out last minute which kind of makes it very difficult for investors uh, sorry for existing investors or not lead investors and at the same time founders also to find investors uh, last minute and that's kind of also a red flag sometimes because they'll be like oh why did your investor kind of like last minute abandon the ship did they find something out and they kind of like all kind of spooked out now this could happen during a fundraise this could happen between secondary sales of of shares as well what is like a typical no shop clause are kind of put in what's the duration that you would say a founders can actually put in to also protect themselves from ensuring that investors don't abandon ship and at the same time they're getting the right sort of period for other investors to take their time in terms of doing the diligence as well so uh, akash the you know general standard practice which is being uh, i think practiced in india with respect to a early stage investment is uh, exclusivity period or a no shop period of around 45 to 60 days mm-hmm. wherein the investors would complete their uh, diligence and also enter into the definitive document mm-hmm. so a kind of uh, i think 45 to 60 days is something which is being agreed by the you know investors and the founders in the term sheet stage and if there is something which is uh, or an event happened or if there is any uh, you know undue delay delays which is being caused due to certain reasons it can end it with a uh, you know agreement in writing or uh, a discussion with the mutual agreement of both the parties but i think 45 to 60 days is something wherein the investor would be able to complete the diligence or also enter into a definitive agreement and mm-hmm. also prevent the founders from you know going around and searching for better terms and better valuation and uh, you know uh, keep the investors um, in loop so i think this is something which 
generally the investors and the founders agree and we also have this kind of a term uh, agreed in the term sheet as well as our investment you know standard investment document so it have generally you also doesn't... seen any situation wherein founders put in a clause or you know it's kind of like asking for certain things like for instance if diligence is taking longer than kind of expected mm-hmm. is there any clause i haven't like often seen this happen but you know there might be outlier situations where founders are able to like put something in wherein if diligence takes longer than a certain period of time and you know especially if it's a lead they kind of end up also hurting chances of raising money if there's a certain sort of commitment that's required if especially if it's an existing investor who's thinking of a future round oh uh, generally it doesn't happen wherein the founders might want to actually incorporate certain restriction mm-hmm. or certain provision but uh, because generally if the, uh, that's only a diligence aspect which might take longer which we also see in the practical terms but it will also depend upon in in a, if you see that will completely depend upon the company and the founders okay in fact the founders to provide the documents and the information and the details to the dd team so generally this is something which is completely depend upon they will completely depend upon the founders and how uh, quick the team of the company is to provide the information and the documents to the diligence uh, team so uh, it is highly unlikely that any investor would agree on putting any such clause uh, which wherein the responsibility is solely of the company and the founders because whenever we are also uh, you know um, uh, at the councils from the investor side we make it yeah. clear to the and generally we try to complete any kind of a deal in say one one and a half i i think so uh, one and a half to uh, two months and not more than that and we make it clear that uh, you know all the documents should of the diligence should be provided on uh, a very uh, immediate basis because that is where the longest time takes place mm. so if there has been certain round of investments already there into the company we can even look at a very uh, stringent timelines but if it's a first round of investment happening into the company and the first round of diligence which is happening into the company it is very likely that there's a lot of time which goes into diligence because the documents are not in place the best practices are not being followed it takes time to understand the practices which are already there into the company but if it the investors are already there on the cap table it is likely that they are looking into the operations all of these things are managed particularly and therefore less uh, time goes into you know completing the transaction as well as the diligence very interesting now one of the other things that we often end up kind of like looking at and you and i discussed this and i want to like ask this question also is when it comes to liquidation when it comes to like owning your own rights as a founder how do you ensure you don't end up liquidating too much of your own or diluting your own shares which which we've kind of like seen this with a few founders who have kind of like managed to like hang on to like a lot of theirs we've seen mark zuckerberg jeff bezos in the indian case we've seen um vss kind of hang on to like his equity which is perhaps the highest for one single person at atm or one communication the parent company how do founders really go about protecting their own equity and how are they able to do so successfully wherein companies end up raising billions and billions of dollars but still end up having majority uh, equity in the company in some cases but or having slightly more than expected at for a typical founder at that stage if i uh, tell you about you know uh, the dilution mechanics i think at a, you know at the initial um, uh, 
um, in the initial round of investment, as I told you earlier, it is very important to keep the dilution intact and not to dilute more, right? But it also depends upon, so I'll tell you the perspective, um, you know, of the investor investing into the company. Um, like I told you, there are certain parameters and also the metrics which the investors look into the you know, for the company and the founders. One of those aspects are also the pedigree of the founders and also the background of the founders. Mm -hmm. So say if there is a founder which is a seasoned in, uh, entrepreneur already and at times it has happened in some of our clients uh, wherein the startups or the founder, the startup founders are, uh, have already, uh, you know, in, are the investors themselves or they have already, you know, uh, successfully uh, promoted the company and they have, uh, you know, made, there is an exit which has already happened and they have, then they are out of the company and they have floated a new company or a new startup like if i give you an example of kunal shah okay so in these kind of uh, seasoned entrepreneurs there is a very high chances of the investors investing into the capability of the founders and not diluting to a certain aspect now if we talk about the founders who are the early stage founders and you know the fresh graduates or the you know the uh, founders who are very young, who do not have an entrepreneurial experience, but they are, the concept is very good. The product is very good. The market is very good. The It's a competitive kind of an environment. And we know that the growth trajectory of the startup is going to be excellent. However, we, the investors have to actually believe in them. In that case, there are certain metrics through which the founders agree or protect their dilution. Production of dilution is not only necessary for the founders, Akash, but it is also necessary from, for the investors because they would want the next rounds uh, also to happen, right? So next rounds of, uh, will only happen when, when there is a skin in the game of the founders. So uh, I have told you that typically as a standard, it's not something which is, uh, there's no yardstick. Uh, with respect to the measurement of the dilution or the percentage equity which the founder should hold. But we have seen that founders should ideally be holding 50% um, post-Series A round. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, it will also depend upon the kind of segment in which the founders or the company is operating. So if it is a capital intensive segment, if it is something which, you know, a segment which requires a higher um, or the multiple round of investment in order to even come to the certain life cycle of the product. Say if there is a company which is operating into the space tech, okay, if there mm -hmm. is a company which is operating into a certain very innovative model, maybe a drone tech or a, a defense technology. In that particular kind of a scenario, it is very important for the uh, company to keep on raising the investment till the time the product is even ready. And in that case, the dilution is likely to happen, right? Mm -hmm. But this particular segment is also the investors who uh, invest in this particular uh, ecosystem or in this particular sector are very well aware of this aspect. Now, in order to actually increase their stake, there is certain options available where which the investors also agree. So there is a provisioning of ESOP, which might be given to the promoters at a certain point of time. Generally, the ESOP is prohibited for the promoters under the Companies Act 2013. However, uh, there is a legislation by the ministry wherein it has said that for a startup, for a company which is considered to be a startup, 
the prom, uh, under the DPIT recognized, which is the DPIT recognized startup, the promoters are uh, eligible to get the ESOPs. Okay, mm -hmm. so ESOPs are one scenario with which the dilution is protected. So if, so in, in fact, I'll give you an example of a company of ours, wherein there are four founders and the founders, since they are four in number, they have already diluted and come to say around 35% cumulative. So in that case, there is a requirement of increasing their stake, wherein the ESOP mechanism is, mechanism is being issued to increase their stake to a certain uh, extent, at least wherein they come to at least 40% in their CDC round. Now, um, there is, apart from ESOP mechanics, there is a clawback. Now, clawback is something which defines the increase in uh, holding of the founders whenever there is a certain milestone or predefined milestone achieved by the founders in the company. So at the time of, uh, you know, investment discussions or the valuation discussions, the uh, founders and the investors agree on, a, uh, you know, uh, on a kind of a situation wherein there are certain milestones which are given to the founders. And if those milestones are achieved by the founders within a certain period of time, mm -hmm. the, invest uh, the founders will be eligible for the increase in their stake their stake might be increased through a change in their, uh, you know, if it uh, they might be allotted the CCPS at that point of time, mm -hmm. uh, they might be allotted uh, free shares through rights issue mechanism. There may be a transfer of shares from the investors to the founders. And there might also be an increase in the stake through ESOP mechanism as well at a later point of time. So this is something which is also agreed uh, at some point. There is one more aspect wherein uh, which is being followed right now, which is of warrants. Mm -hmm. It is generally not seen in a early stage company, but it is seen in a matured company, uh, maybe post series C or something, wherein the investors again agree for certain milestones to be achieved by the founders. And if those milestones are agreed, they are okay to convert the warrants into the shares and right. through which the stake of the founders is increased into the company. So these are, I think, the most important uh, aspects which are to be kept in if there is a slight chance of, uh, you know, equity of the founders being fallen to a certain, uh, you know, lower limits. Ankita, I've actually also seen the other way play out, wherein investors are offered warrants by founders in case of, say, certain incubation sort of situations. I'll tell you from our own um, portfolio perspective, and I've had this experience myself, um, mm -hmm. without naming the company, you know, when we as investors reached out and we were able to like help incubate a company for expansion into a particular region, we were able to then particularly position it in such a way that we start unlocking certain rights for ourselves and certain equity points. Should we be in a position to help this company reach and expand to certain markets and more importantly, hit those revenue numbers for them. Now, this is a very unique sort of situation where investors can have warrants positioned so that they can earn extra rights and extra points in future stages. How often have you seen this kind of play out in Indian scenarios where, yeah, founders get an opportunity to have warrants and then buy back or win some of the uh, points, especially when they're able to like meet their targets. But for, does it happen from an investor perspective? How often does that happen in India? And what are the, you know, 
drawbacks of that, especially with respect to like the other investors who are on the cap table? So generally, Akash, this kind of a scenario which you are talking about has not happened into India. At least I have not seen it. Recent trends in the startup ecosystem have shown that there is an equity, uh, you know, being given in lieu of the services. Okay, so in such an arrangement, warrants are being issued along with the line of credit to the startups. And as and when the line of credit is exhausted, the, uh, you know, the service provider or the services, you know, the uh, entity which is providing the services to that startup will use the warrants which are uh, issued to them to exercise the rights to subscribe to the shares of the company. But the scenario which you were talking about is not uh, being happening in the uh, startup ecosystem, at least in India as of now. And also there's one more scenario in which the warrants is being given in a startup is by the venture debt fund. So whenever there is a venture debt fund, which is infusing the debt into the company, they do uh, you know, um, ask for a certain portion of warrants along with the debt because they want certain equity participation to be there, there into the company in order to be, you know, uh, be aware of the operations of the company because without equity participation, they won't be able to even, uh, you know, attend the board meetings or uh, maybe any meetings as a shareholder of the company. So there is an equity participation which is required for the venture debt fund also to be, uh, to in order to protect their investments. And they are also subscribing to a certain portion of warrants but not something is, uh, you know, the situation which you just mentioned right now is not common in India as of now. Okay. Now, no. Ankita, coming back to like a very important part of the term sheet also, especially as you're looking at it from a seed or series A perspective is understanding the governance management and control, basically setting the rules of investment through the term sheet uh, about how much control a person has or a VC has or a founder or founders have. Now the key term to look out here is voting rights, board rights, information rights and founder vesting. Now with respect to voting rights themselves, these are the rights of shareholders to vote on matters of corporate policy. Now these clauses are typically part of a term sheet pointing out how voting rights are divided across different instruments, A, B, preferred. It also defines for which corporate action a, a voting majority is required. Now, this can be amongst other terms included, like in changes to share uh, instrument, issuance of securities, redemption of repurchasing of shares, declaration of payouts or dividends, um, change of the number of board of directors, liquidation in case of a sale, closing material contracts or leases, um, annual spending budgets and expectations, and changes to bylaws. I think this is something that not often talked about. Depending on how the voting majority of this topic is defined, you're kind of like allowed as the holder of the instrument to block any of the above actions. Okay. Now, when you're a founder, and I'm only approaching this from a very founder perspective right now, how do you structure some of the voting rights and what are some key things to consider in some of the things that I perhaps mentioned uh, a couple of seconds ago, or maybe some of the stuff that I left out but if you're a founder sitting today and thinking about how do I want to let investors or key members of my team have certain rights, especially as my company grows, what are some of the red flags that you've seen which can really end up becoming a problem? And what is really important uh, to keep on top of mind when you're structuring uh, voting agreements and vote voting rights? 
so generally akash if i talk to you about have you know the management uh, position composition and also the voting rights i'll talk to you uh, specifically about the board structure and the representation of the investors on board because board is the backbone of the company and it is the board which operates the uh, company so uh, generally whenever the investment is happening the investor would want the representative to be there on the uh, board of the company and in the form of holding the director position in the on the board now uh, since last few years we are also seeing that you know considering the fiduciary responsibility which the director is under the companies act uh, there is a situation wherein the investors do not want the director to hold the director position but they might want to hold the observer position which is not the specific which doesn't come with a lot of responsibilities and liabilities in fact no responsibility and liability so the observer position is a contractual position wherein the investors representative who is an observer on the board is allowed to uh, be a part of the meetings take and is contractually given the right to have all the agenda and even the minutes of the meeting is also allowed to advise the uh, you know the founders and the board but their advice or their inputs are not mandatorily required by the company and founders to agree upon but it comes with lesser responsibilities and liabilities under the companies act and therefore this is something which is being agreed by the investors considering that no one wants to be put under the radar or have a sword hanging on their neck uh, you know of the regulatory protection uh, provisions however still if there is a uh, investment which is of a considerable amount and also at a very early stage the people you know people want to have a director position from the investor side and also certain reserve matter rights now there are two kind of you know ways in which a resolution or any resolution is passed by the uh, shareholder um uh, with the board it is obviously the majority of the directors agreeing to a, a resolution and in the shareholder there is an ordinary resolution and there is a special resolution ordinary resolution is when the 50% of the or more of the shareholders agree and the special resolution is when 75% or more of the shareholders agree now uh, there is an aspect of a reserve matter list or a affirmative vote action items or a uh protective matters which is laid down as a part of term sheet also so the investors argue and negotiate upon having a cert a right of affirmative vote or a veto right on certain actions which you just told right now so what the veto right or affirmative vote matter or as a reserve matter means that you know the actions which are there or the business uh, or the terms which are or the resolution which are mentioned in that particular list whenever it is being taken up either in the board meeting or a shareholder meeting a prior approval of the right holder is required before any such action item is even discussed in that particular meeting okay now when we are talking from the founder side this is actually in order to protect the right of the investors because the investors are not uh you know carrying on the operations of the company on a day to day basis right the operations of the company are being carried out by the founders 
and the investors though they have a board position they won't be uh, you know they are the financial investors who won't be uh, asking for every day to day details and every minute details from the company and they are not they they are even not keen to be that much of invested into the company because they have a lot of investments which are there in a the, lot of number of companies and they can't be you know getting into the operation of each and every company until they have a certain specific um, you know control or something Mm-hmm. but uh, this is uh, it's, so that's why this kind of a right is very necessary for the investors however the founders way to protect this is to agree on a certain threshold whenever there is a financial um, sense associated with any action item so i'll give you a, a sense of uh, uh, what kind of an action items are there which are falling under under the affirmative uh vote matters or a veto matters it is you know like you said the change in any rights of the shares which are issued to the investor which is very important for the investor any change in the authorized or issued capital of the company any change in the bylaws or the charter documents of the company any winding up liquidation event or any approval or any such event you know any new round of investment any merger acquisition any change in the esop terms or the number of or the percentage of esop because obviously if there is a change in the percentage of esop there is a consequent dilution of the investors also happening mm-hmm. okay if there is any related party transaction which is being entered into if there is any investment into any other company and this particular aspect should be particularly uh, looked into by the founders because these kind of things which we are agreeing without uh, you know which we are agreeing open ended without any threshold like if there is any investment which is being carried on by this company to a third party company so there there can be a situation wherein say a 100 rupee investment is being carried on uh, okay due to certain reason so it should not happen that we are going for each and every petty item to the investor because we need to protect our operational freedom also so in we can provide a threshold to that particular kind of uh, action item that if there is an investment of more than say 30 crores or if there is an investment of say more than 50 lakh it typically how the investors and the founders structure is that whatever is the round of investment 10% of that round can be associated with the threshold so if there is a uh, one crore of investment 10% of it is 10 lakh rupees so we can agree on a threshold that if there is a investment happening of more than 10 lakh okay if there is a loan of more than 10 lakh which is being acquired by the company in that particular case the investors approval will be required under the reserve matter if there is something which is below that particular amount there is no requirement of uh, obtaining the approval so these are the mechanics through which the investors also might also built in the protection for them and at the same time the founders will also have the operational uh, ability to actually carry on the business of the company uh without any hazards to go and you know obtain the consent on each and every item that's very interesting because also the voting rights can also stipulate that a common majority is required which puts the power in the hands of common shareholders right we talked about preferred shares common shares previously as well right. so it really also comes down to um stipulate the approval of pre- preferred shares when it comes down to who your 
preferred shareholders are when you are kind of structuring all of these and taking into account some of this really important stuff right so if we talk about the voting rights also like we told that's for the companies act there is one voting you know uh, uh, one vote uh, attached to one equity share and the preferred uh, shareholders that is the ccps holders their investment or their stake is on as if converted basis so they are considered to be equity share whenever there is a voting mechanism is being carried out uh, for any particular resolution so if they are holding 20% they have only 20% of right to be you know voting right however this particular mechanism of building in the reserve matter or the veto uh, you know the rights which we, we can provide through veto uh, list we can actually uh, you know protect the important action items which cannot be carried down by the founders and the company without the approval so that is basically which protects the um interest of the company and it also at the same time builds in the flexibility for the uh, founders to carry on the operation without any hassles right now extension of that is also another major potential loss of control when we talk about is the composition and the mandate of the board now the board of directors is basically a group of people chosen to represent the interests of the stakeholders of the company or the shareholders of the company at every level now mm-hmm. it is man it is a mandate to establish policies for corporate governance corporate management and oversight to make the right decisions on behalf of everybody that's part of it right so key corporate decisions what what are some of these instances um it's hiring firing of senior executives dividends and option policies executive compensation setting board goals assuring adequate resources are at disposal and taking some hard calls um you know it's really difficult sometimes for founders who are perhaps doing it for the first time or those who have done it multiple times when it comes to some key decisions it's really important to like get the counsel of everybody because it's important because there are a lot of people riding in that ship together with you now the structure of the board or the number of meetings and all of these are nuances that can be set by the founders at a different point of time but what are da- what are some of the dangerous practices um that unfortunately get put into board structures which cannot or is very hard to rectify from a founder perspective and unfortunately founders then end up losing some sort of um trust within the board members who often end up then voting some of the founders or the ceos out of the positions that they've been in and we have seen a lot of these instances instances play out over time now when you are advising or you're looking at how the boards are structured or we are seeing some of these things put into like term sheets um how are you advising the founders that come to you and what are some of the best practices that you would perhaps say in terms of structuring a boards and more importantly board rights not just the structuring but what are some of the rights that founders need to ensure that they kind of end up uh, having themselves so that they're able to like protect either the company or themselves from future decisions that might end up having them not to be part of that journey going forward so generally uh, akash founders at a very early stage of uh, investment phase do not have much flexibility to actually uh, negotiate for the rights uh you know more specifically for them because the uh, investor who is coming in would definitely want the rights uh, you know protect their 
uh, investment but when it comes to structuring the kind of board and also their rights i think building in the threshold is the very important metric when we are agreeing to any particular you know such kind of a list wherein we are specifying um, that beyond a certain threshold or beyond a certain mechanism there is a requirement of the investor's approval so say if there is an esop pool which is there into the company okay and if you are saying that and uh, through that esop pool and if you are hiring a particular person then it might be a situation that you are not required to take an approval you should argue that you are not required to take an approval for each and every member while hiring in but you are only required to take a approval for the key managerial personnel whenever they are being hired and how you can define a key managerial personnel is somebody who is getting um, uh, you know esop percentage of more than 20% of the uh, or more than 2% of the esop pool or a salary bracket of say 30 lakh or 40 lakh above per annum something of this sort can be built in to actually uh, you know restrict the list and also building in the flexibility for the founders to not actually give away all the rights to the investors so that their operational capabilities are being withheld the second very important factor is that they should try and keep the board to be at a odd number so that you know they are able to uh, have a clean kind of a uh, majority and it is it doesn't stuck in a deadlock kind of a situation so if if there is a four uh, member board there might be a situation that uh, two members are agreeing to a particular resolution while the two members are not so it is very important for a founder to also uh, see if there is a you know if we can build in an odd number board so that it is agree uh, you know it is easier for the resolution to pass through secondly they should also agree on their kind of representation so say if there is two founder they might uh, in order to and if there are two set of investors who are coming in they might in order to build that board they might also want the two founders to be appointing three uh, you know founder representative on the board which might be two founders plus one other person who can be the founder representative while there are two investor representatives on the board um uh, there is one more aspect which is uh, which will come in is whenever there are several set of investors who are having the representative on the board say if there are two or three rounds have happened and there is one board member who is there into the company uh, on the board of the company and all of them have the uh, are the part of the affirmative vote matter and as per and they are arguing for the uh, you know consent to be taken uh, before any such actions take place so it is very difficult for the founders to actually again and again ask for the consent of all the three set of investors before any resolution can be passed in or even placed before the board or the shareholders meeting so it is ideal that if there are three investors then you can get a consent or try to negotiate to get consent of two out of three uh, investors and not of all the three in that case if there is a majority of the investors who are agreeing to a certain resolution then that resolution should be considered passed and in one more thing we what we can do is that if there is a, a kind of a deadlock between the three investors and all of them are requiring their consent to be taken in at the time of negotiation of the term sheet we can agree on pro attaching it to a certain time limit that you know if there is a, such a situation happening and if they are not agreeing for two out of three and all the three consents are to be brought in in order to place the uh, action item before the meeting 
we can agree on a certain time limit of 24 hours from the day on which the action is being uh, you know they are they have been intimated of any such action item they have to provide their consent or dissent within a 24 hours period uh, so in order to move ahead so it should be at least restricted to the time limit right. the very important factor i think which we should and the from the founders perspective we should consider it is a fall away right wherein we should agree on certain fall away mechanism uh, fall away would means that the certain rights would uh you know go away if the investors investment stake falls below certain percentage and mm -hmm. it is generally uh, agreed to say 2% or 5% so you would the founders would not want to keep giving the rights to the investors who are holding 2% or maybe 5% at a later point of time so the very important right which should fall away from that in decrease in the percentage is the vote right and the affirmative vote right because that is the most important aspect from the founders perspective to keep the operational uh, hurdles you know uh, uh, not being uh, always there for them so i think falls fall away also makes it easier for the next round investors also because it sets a precedent that whoever is uh, you know coming below a certain threshold will not be able to have their vote position intact or the affirmative uh, or the veto matters intact great points here because i think one of the things that founders need to fully understand is the importance of the board's decision making and the impact of the proposed structures and provisions especially when they're outlining um how the board functions and this is also where investors show their trust in the founders and the team that kind of gets built around them the more control that the investor is trying to gain through the board the more that they are trying to minimize the risk of mismanagement and that's something that a lot of founders don't often end up understanding you know they're not trying to put you on a leash but they're trying to like ensure that there's kind of proper structures that are put into place i in very odd situations well founders want to like take over unless they kind of see a few red flags right now having said that uh, one other thing that a lot of founders typically don't get and they don't end up doing well really well is providing board observer seats now mm -hmm. when an investor makes an investment typically they're excited about their investment and they want to see about see it grow they want to learn about the company and they want to see how they can really add value to the founders but founders often view this as a means to cut some of them out they're not happy providing board observer rights and it takes literally nothing to provide a board observer right so in your instance how should an investor appear to or let's let's reword that now in your opinion how can investors kind of take this conversation forward with a founder and ensure that they're able to get some of these rights even if the size of the check is really small but in the long term the value that they add is slightly more but the founders are not aware about it at the outset so honestly uh, akash i think the board observer is something which the founders should agree upon uh, instantly because that is something which is really trouble you know less troublesome for them 
and also there are no operational hurdles as such except there is a contractual right of giving information of each and every meeting and mm-hmm. providing the agenda and everything to the observer and there is a requirement of uh, observer uh, you know being a part of the meeting and there is also they might agree to whatever the observer is giving inputs uh, on but it is not mandatory for them to agree on you know or to consent to such inputs and i think it is for the founders to uh, understand these aspects because there is no requirement of any statutory there is no statutory liability or there is no statutory status of the observer as of now at least under indian regulations mm-hmm. and that is the reason that even if the there is a fall away which is being agreed the founder should also uh, see you know because there are certain investors at an early stage who are uh, wanting to agree to a fall away with a rider that if they are falling uh, you know if uh, due to certain rest, uh, due to a fall away right if their investment goes down below say 5% their board right goes however they will be under the and they will be um, they will have a right to appoint an observer into the board of the company so i think this is what which each uh, founder should understand and at least this is what something which we are um, as a counsel to the founders are uh, making the founders understand because and I, i have seen that most of the founders nowadays are very well aware of this concept and in fact Uh, they are agreeing to the aspect that if uh, there is a fall away uh, and the board investor is not able to maintain their board position they are okay to give the observer position because that way is the negotiation also uh, you know happens quickly and there is a set of trust also in the incoming in the investor because they know that the founder is okay to them for them being a part of the company uh, maybe as an observer whenever they don't have a right to appoint a board uh, member into the company This is fantastic information, Ankita, because we've literally spent about a couple of hours demystifying and understanding various aspects of the term sheet, and I think I have covered most of it. And information rights also kind of like comes very similarly with part of like board rights, and yes, you know, right. kind of like part of all of that as well when you're talking about um, observe observation rights and everything that kind of gets put tied into like the similar package. What I'm now trying to like. on my last question is things that you advise founders like when you speak with founders and you're advising them with respect to construction of a term sheet what are some of the things that they should really really keep on top of mind and what are some things that they should just be happy to negotiate or even let go of and saying it's not worth spending too much time on this and wasting a good relationship with an existing investor or a potential investor yeah so uh, see akash something which uh, so the rights which we have discussed right now are very important and will be there on the term sheet and these rights are more specifically restricting the founders from you know doing something which is not in the benefit of the company and is putting the investors uh, investment at stake now in the founders first of all what we try to make them understand is that these are something which is a standard practice and you know how well we can protect our right is very much important rather than just fighting on uh, you know getting these rights just go away 
so every investor would want a rofer on the founder shares every investor would want a lock in on the founder shares every investor would want to be there on the board of the company looking after uh, how the operations are being uh, carried on or at least being a part of the important aspects taking uh, the veto matters also under consideration and there is certain sense of uh, reluctance from the founder side on maintaining the esop percentage as well because uh, you know at the early stage investors who do not have much idea i think that they are being unnecessarily diluted but esop metrics is something which is very important at a early stage of investment because at that point of time you are building the product but at the same time it is very important to build a team as well because ultimately the team is the uh, major uh, team plays a, a major part you know in the in the business of the company in the journey which the founder is going to undertake along with the investors so it is a, a standard practice that in a pre series uh, kind of round of investment there is a 10% of esop pool which is to be carved in which will be which should be utilized to hire uh, better people and uh, the people who you can actually retain for a longer period of time uh, because it is very important for any particular business or any particular organization to actually go grow further uh, apart from that founders will also need to understand that there's the restrictions upon them is in order to protect everybody's investment okay and it is important for a third party to restrict them to sell their shares and the most reluctance which comes from the founder side is whenever we are talking about the lock in on their shares now it we have to understand the lock in is not in order to actually not let them share sell the shares but it it is in order to at least not let them sell the shares just you know for good so but there are certain mechanisms through which the lock in can be protected for the founders so we need to actually spend the time on protecting their lock in rather than on discussing about the founders not shares not being under the lock in because that is something which is not uh, which won't be possible in any round of investment at least a early stage investments and which is not ideal also because apart from a single founder normally there are two or three founders and not uh, you know the founders interest would not also want and the founder to go which is very important for the business to grow so uh, it is very important that there are certain restrictions on the founders to sell their shares and these restrictions should be correctly and very clearly spelled in generally the lock in period for the founders to sell their shares is 4 years and which keeps on reinstating whenever there is a next round of investment so again the lock in triggers in and the uh, lock in then initiates from that particular investment closing date so how we generally protect the right of the founders in that particular cases generally founders sell the shares whenever there is a emergency situation which might be there kind of a you know there is a hospital uh, uh, cost which is which might be required there is somebody who is not well or there might be a treatment which is happening or there is a real estate uh, you know property which the founder might want to actually uh, you know purchase something which is uh unseen unforeseen circumstance or maybe which is very much required uh for that purpose uh, we try to build in a situation wherein they can sell their shares with the prior approval of the investors 
they can we can try to negotiate on an aspect wherein they can sell their shares without even prior approval of the investors in a situation wherein there is a health emergency okay uh, a health emergency kind of a situation happens however we can't give them an open ended kind of a restriction uh, of a, we can't build in a, an open ended clause we try to uh, maintain it to a certain percentage depending upon the stage of investment it can be either 2% 2.5% or 5% and maybe in a in a tra- single transaction or in a series of transaction mm-hmm. so this kind of a scenario can be built in in order to protect certain unforeseen circumstances because apart from that there is no reason for a founder to actually sell the shares mm-hmm. okay and if the founder is very insistent upon selling the having this particular right go away or is negotiating hard to actually you know uh, not bring the shares under lock in mechanism it actually creates a red flag for the investors because they are not psychologically you know it's very uncomfortable for them to invest their money into the founder who is not even ready to be into the company because that is something which is not uh, they they actually sense there's something which is not right and the founder might want to go away mm-hmm. so uh, this is something which is very important and every investor understands the requirement uh, the financial requirement so there is a uh, and they will most probably want to agree to these aspect i have not seen any investment transaction wherein the investors have not agreed to provide certain leverage to the founders or mm-hmm. certain shares to the founders we can also because there is a vesting clause uh, which is there or maybe the reverse vesting i should not say vesting or reverse vesting wherein the shares are already owned by the founder but they are kept under lock in for say 4 to 5 years generally 4 years is the time period and the reverse vesting means that certain percentage in equal installments is being um, vested to the founders so say if there is a round happening uh, you know today and uh, we are drafting carving out the shareholders agreement so we say that you know the founders shares will be locked in uh, now it generally depends upon the negotiation between the founders and the investors we might also agree upon 20% of the shares owned by the founders being vested on day 1 that is today on the execution date and the rest of the uh, you know the uh, investment or the uh, shareholding might unlock or uh, vest uh, maybe annually or monthly or quarterly that will solely depend upon the a negotiation between the founders and the investors but this uh, these are the few mechanisms through which the rights uh, of the investors and the founders specifically the founders are protected uh, whatever shares are being vested or uh, unlocked doesn't mean that they are uh, the founders will have the right to sell the shares freely they are under the restrictions of rofer and tag so whenever there is a the founders can only sell their shares which are vested to them as per the vesting schedule and however the shares can only be sold after providing the due opportunity for the other investors to you know uh, also you know having the right to purchase those shares under the rofer mechanism and also the tag along provision so the tag along means that whenever the founder is purchase, selling the shares again if i come to the rofer mechanism and they have given a third party offer uh, they have brought in a third party offer and given that offer to the existing investor or the right holder uh, the and the right holder do not want to exercise the rofer right and do not want to purchase the shares however they want to actually because the valuation at which the founder is selling the shares to a third 
party is so lucrative that it would want their shares also to be sold along with them so they can uh, they ask for the tag along right and tag along right would mean that if there is some such uh, this kind of a situation happening they might not want to actually uh, you know trigger their rofer but they might trigger their tag wherein they might also want to prorate sell their shares along with the founders to that third party investor so this is something these are the restriction through which the founders as well as the investors protect their right under a situation wherein the founders want to sell their shares this is great advice for so many founders and i know prachi who's been listening to this episode with us has just shared a comment how insightful it's been so far for for her as well and i think a lot of founders will end up listening to it will just take so much away and this is evergreen content anybody who's building a company today anybody who's building a company a couple of years from now can really look back on it and take so much information away from this and I got to give you so much credit Ankita for breaking down this in such a simple format for everybody to understand and I had a ball just sitting and listening to some of these insights because you know even for me some of these concepts are hazy in my head and you know it kind of can be confusing when you're thinking about certain elements and especially situationally it's also very different for founders so I think what you have done is created a great foundation for people to listen to and more importantly start understanding the basics of a term sheet and this was more than what i had hoped for and i'm super grateful that you were able to share all of this and so generous with all of your insights and patiently answering the questions that i had thank you so much akash in fact i think this is something which is uh, which is a topic in which we can actually keep on speaking because there are certain more and more aspects to it you know when it comes to negotiation and the kind of structuring or the kind of situation in which we can actually protect because i told you that recently in a deal we are representing three particular uh, stakeholders which is the existing investor which is a company as well as the incoming investor right. so actually it makes us uh, aware of different kind of negotiations to in order to protect the rights of all the stakeholders at once yeah so uh, so you know it makes it makes to us to look into various aspects through which we are able to actually balance the negotiations and also make the deal happen in a contours of the uh, situation you're absolutely right and we could have kept talking about it for on and on because there were certain things that we didn't even have time to touch upon like um exit exits and liquidities drag along rights tag along rights and understanding the nuances associated with it redemption rights and so on and so forth right there's so much that can be spoken about here correct, correct. and we obviously don't have the opportunity to get into all of that but what like i'd like to do is perhaps bring you back um in the future and perhaps do a part 2 of this episode i know we when we discussed we did not really like know how long the episode's going to go on for did not really know how the episode's going to pan out but it turned out to be so insightful that i think a part two at a later stage where we can really add and build upon what we've had and as you mentioned get into the um ins and outs and more importantly understanding certain negotiating tactics and strategies and instances that you have seen play out in the past and hopefully um in the future as well can discuss deeply about some of these issues that founders can then kind of like think about certain situations that may be arising in their own journeys or have seen it happen in some of the co-founder colleagues that they have 
correct akash i would love to do that in fact there is a uh, complete subject matter of esops which we can take care of because there are certain esop is very important for any startup and right. there are certain mechanisms in which we would want to retain the employees because in uh, till now we had been thinking that esop is the only mechanism to actually retain the employees but there, but there are certain other mechanisms also like stock appreciation plan which is not being used in india predominantly you know and uh, uh, these kind of uh, situations are very uh, crucial for any startup where they don't want to dilute through esop but at the same time they want to retain their employees as well um there are certain advisors who are coming on the board of the company uh, to which they want to give the shares but they can't give the shares through esop and they can't also issue the shares they might enter because they don't want to dilute and maybe the investors won't want to agree but they can enter into a stock appreciation kind of a situation wherein they can give the shares to that particular uh, uh, you know give the incentivize those uh, advisors for the advice without uh, shelling away the equity of the company so i think that is a subject which is uh, you know a very kind of a big subject in itself and we can uh, we would love i i would love to be a part of it you know at a later point of time whenever you feel so we should do that this is a this is a topic that's also very close to my heart and a lot of i've been spending a lot of time recently understanding esops and how they're being structured and more importantly where are the negotiating aspects from a founder perspective from an investor perspective from an employee perspective and how do you really structure it because it's it's very difficult to have an ideal structure here it's very case by case and the Got more it. information founders can have about it the more information employees can have about it i think we are touching upon every stakeholder of a startup journey when we're talking about esops not just the Got founders it. and the investors but employees who play a huge role in what a company can look like and the potential that it has and i think this would be a fantastic episode if we're able to like sit down um and talk about various elements of again esops and how we can get into that and i would really love to explore that with you sure sure i would love to do that the past meeting well wasn't that a brilliant episode everybody we went on for over 2 hours but what we have uncovered in this time period is every little possibility associated with the basics of term sheet i hope you all took away as much as i did from this episode and i have to thank ankita for her generosity and most importantly her knowledge i think this is a fantastic episode because this is evergreen and more importantly this is the kind of content that people can come back to in the future and keep listening to over and over again to understand what term sheets are all about and more importantly how the evolutions come about as well Now if you're like me and you enjoyed that episode please go ahead and rate and subscribe to our show because that's one way for others to discover us and more importantly for you to keep updated on all of our latest podcast episodes. We've got some fantastic guests lined up and we've got another episode coming up in the legal series so make sure you tune back in again next week to know what we have in store for you. Until then continue to keep hustling and take care.